Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Insomnia Project. Sit back, relax, lie down even, and listen as we have a conversation about the mundane. One thing we can promise you is that our conversation will be less than fascinating, so you can feel free to drift off. Thank you for joining us. We hope you will listen and sleep. I'm your host, Marco Timpano, as I smash my book against (laughs) furniture. And I have the privilege of having my wonderful sister-in-law, Becca Barker, here with me today. Becca, welcome to the Insomnia Project. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so grateful to have you here because I find you to be one of the most fascinating people in my family. Uh Uh-oh. Well, but that said, one thing that I find so interesting is that you did your thesis on sea slugs. That's right. What what brought you to sea slugs? Um, well, the road to sea slugs was not a direct road. That's the greatest opening line for someone's memoirs I've ever heard in my life. Please continue. Um, picture this. Yes. It's the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. I'm in my early 20s, and I am, on one hand, um, realizing that I need to complete my degree that I started, okay. which was a science degree in majoring in biology, but also realizing that the reason why I had gone into that degree Mm -hmm. in university, realizing that my initial reason for doing it, um, you know, which was to go into medicine was not something I wanted. Okay. And so, um, but I still loved biology. Okay. And so when I got to my fourth year, Mm -hmm. um, I had the opportunity to do some independent an independent research project. Um, so I did an honors thesis and, um, Part of the reason why I didn't want to go into medicine anymore Mm -hmm. was because um, humans, anatomically, were very boring to me. Okay. Right? So, like, because every time you open one up, it's the same stuff over and over again. Sure. This is like, yeah, okay, the liver's over here, the lungs are over here, blah, blah, blah. 
and um, and just the same body plan. And one of the things I really loved about my biology degree was um, studying all the different, just the variety of animals in the animal kingdom. Sure. Um, I didn't care about plants. I didn't really care about microbes. But animals, just the breadth and diversity of species, um, just that in and of itself was fascinating to me. Okay. And, and of all these kinds of animals, um, the most fascinating animals to me were um, invertebrates. Oh. Um, and especially those... Uh, invertebrates that um, live in or near the ocean. So for our listeners who might not know what an invertebrate is, mm. I'm going to take a stab here and say it's a animal that doesn't have a backbone? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so an invertebrate um, can get its body structure from having an exoskeleton like an insect does, a hard sort of shell. Um Invertebrates also include mollusks, okay, um, which um, are shelled, which have you know shells like we are familiar with, uh, as in snail shells or um, bivalve, sort of your mussel shells or clam shells. Would a squid or cuttlefish fall in that? Even though I believe they're in the mollusk family, yes, they have like a, um, you know how a cuttlefish has that sort of hard bone that you'll often find in canary cages that they'll use as a thing to sharpen their beak or just bite on. Right. I think there's a little bit of cartilage or something. Um, To be totally honest, I don't exactly remember why um, they wind up taxonomically with... The mollusks. With, um, yeah, mollusks and gastropods. So... So, um, I, sorry, mollusks include, um, gastropods and, uh, which are snails and slugs and they include, uh, cephalopods, which are your octopi and Mm. squid. And then, um, the sort of bivalves, the clams and mussels and that kind of thing. Some of the tastier things you find. Right. Right. Well, you know, squid and octopi are pretty tasty too. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. One of my favorite things to have is a octopus, a cold octopus salad. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so great. I'll make Mm -hmm. it for you one day. Nice. There's Mm -hmm. this really great, um, Korean soup in the spring, in the springtime. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just got baby octopi in it, which is like adorable and then kind of sad but then like they're just really tender and yummy i'm a huge fan of and i know i'm going to say this uh, incorrectly so for, forgive me because i know you you speak korean and it's soon tofu the tofu soup especially when i'm feeling a little bit under the weather yeah it's the one thing i gravitate towards yeah uh, Sundubu. Yes. Sundubu jjigae. Yeah. There you go. It's like a tofu stew. Yeah. Um, but that has bivalves in it. That's right. It so does. so mollusks actually figure um, pretty prominently in Korean cuisine. Uh, right. Gastropods too, like mm-hmm. periwinkles. And so, yeah, they, they basically eat everything that'll you can dredge up from the sea. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And that's... Um, Something I say based on my experience of, of living there and, and actually seeing some of the um, fishing practices. Really? Yeah. So, but um, yeah, so I became particularly fascinated with 
um, with these invertebrates right. and, and, and mollusks in particular, just because they're so completely different mm-hmm. from what we're used to on land. Um, and even, you know, what you're used to seeing with fish, with bony fish, fish sure. that have like skeletons. Mm-hmm. Um, I think recently something came out that said uh, some genetic study that octopi were officially the animal that was most alien to other animals, oh. genetically speaking. It kind of makes sense when yeah. you, if you if you sort of take back how often we see octopi in books or even on television and media, and mm-hmm. cartoons and whatnot. Mm-hmm. If you were just to look at that one creature one that one animal compared to every other animal that's out there it really does stand out in particular how they can change color or parts of their shape to Mm -hmm. mimic the area that they're in Mm -hmm. i find that fascinating Mm -hmm. not to mention that they have a beak underneath underneath them and uh, just yeah um and and interestingly um it seemed it seems like it is a coincidence, but it's hard to imagine it being a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about all of the ways, uh, when you think of representations of aliens right. in movies and popular culture, sure. often there's some kind of octopus-like feature yeah. about them. And it's like, how did you know? You know, like, yeah. it's like, oh, let's make it look alien. Therefore, it will look like an octopus. octopus. So go. somehow I feel like... We already knew that octopi were aliens. A little bit, a yeah, little bit str- yeah. stranger than normal, yeah. if you will. Have you ever read the book *Angry Young Spaceman*? No. It's um, it's a, it's a, a novel. Um, uh, it was written in the late '90s, I think. Um, but it's about uh, a guy who basically. In, in essence, he's an ESL teacher, but it's sort of like an, in, instead of just going to another country, he goes, he's sent to another planet. Wow. And it's very thinly veiled, like his experience in Korea, just to bring this like full circle, oh, sure, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. for example, the, um, the the popular drink uh, instead of called soju, it's it's spelled backwards as like ujos or something. Okay. But anyway. But there's a nod there. It just made me think about that. Yeah. Sure. So that's something that brings together sort of aliens, octopi, Korea, and uh, sure. and our discussion on intertidal and um, invertebrates that live in the sea. So Now, now what is the, I, I don't know how to say this, I guess the proper name for a sea slug, because I heard you bantering it with your sister, right, Amanda, who I mention in almost every episode, right. who happens to be my wife, but yeah. She happens to be my sister. There you go. See, and there's the connection. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there are lots of varieties of sea slugs oh, okay. around the planet. Sure. They really vary in color and size and shape. Um and so there are lots of different species. Okay. Um, but one um, group of them, uh, which is the one that I studied, belongs to, uh, is called nudibranch. Nudibranch. Yeah. So sea slugs are just what you think they are. They're slugs that live in the sea, mm-hmm. basically. Um, but nudibranchs are specifically interesting to me because, um, well, if you take the word bronch, Mm-hmm. Right, and you think of parts of the body, like what, what oh. part is the bronch? Like, like the, your bronchial, so exactly. to deal with breathing or exactly, oh. exactly. 
And so nudibranch means your breathing apparatus Mm -hmm. is on the outside of your body. And so if you can imagine if your lungs were not inside your body, Mm -hmm. but kind of floating outside, sticking out perpendicular to your body, that's, and they're often referred to as fronds, like, like fern fronds. Okay. Yeah. Um, so nudibranchs have these large, um, can be quite large extensions that come out of the dorsal surface of the animal, which is their back. I see. And um, they can be very feathery. They can be very branch-like. So they really vary in shape and size. But that's basically how the animal breathes. Wow. So the surf, so it, it gives them a large surface area mm-hmm. um, that passes through in the water. Right. And so it um, the nudibranchs fronds take in the oxygen from the water as the water passes through. You can really think of them as a, as a very um, basic sort of proto kind of gill structure, I okay. guess. Um, yeah, I mean, functionally, that's what they're very similar to gills that way. I guess sure. um, when you look at them, they don't really physically resemble gills, but they, right, fair. they do the same thing. The same, same sort of. Yeah. So nudibranchs are interesting because they have that um, really fantastic looking carnival ish. Uh, shape to their the things that stick out of their backs. You know, I've seen some images of sea slugs, and I'm going to guess some of them will be nudibranchs. And um, one of them in particular, they're, they're, they can be so colorful. Yeah. And their shapes are so wondrous. Mm-hmm. And the way they move, you know, because oftentimes you think of a slug. Yeah. And slugs kind of are like the poor man's snail. Yeah. But that's not necessarily the case with a sea slug. That's right. Yeah. They're gorgeous animals that have such unique attributes to them. Yes. Yeah. What would be something that you find particularly interesting or unique or something that really surprised you mm-hmm. in your research on nudibranchs? Um, well, the nudibranch that I studied, it was called um, Dendronotus frondosus. Oh, so it was a particular oh, nudibranch. Yes. So, yes. I'm sorry, could you repeat that name once again? Dendronotus frondosus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is um, a sea slug that lives in the Bay of Fundy. Oh. Specific to that area. Um, and... So, I, I mean, I can't speak, so I can't speak to fair, fair things that are interesting about all sea slugs, right. but certainly um, for my species, it's comparatively uh, dull in color okay. to some of the ones you see um, in warmer climates. Sure, because there's one called, I think, the Spanish Dancer or the Spanish Lady, I think, and <laughs> I, and once again, I could be... That too, might be a colloquial term. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. But it's a sea slug that sort of flaps one way with its side body. And of course, I'm demonstrating it to Becca right now. And you can't see this, but I'm sort of flapping my arms, my hands in. Yes. And then it's a head and body's on a fold. And it folds back and forth like this. Yeah. And um, yeah. it's quite a sight to see me doing this. Yes. I talk to you here. <laughs> But, uh, Hello, this is a very nice performance. Thank you, thank yeah. you. You know, but uh, that one there is so fascinating to mm-hmm. to to see. But back to the Bay of Fundy. Yes. Fundy. So the Dendronotus frondosus um, is a is a is a species of sea slug um, that is known for its um, sort of 
not huge population numbers in the Bay of Fundy, Um, but uh, they are um, simultaneous hermaphrodites. Oh, okay. We need to pause there for just a moment. Yes. So So this is certainly something I'm going to find fascinating. Yes. We should mention where the Bay of Fundy is for for sure, because we've got listeners from all over. Right. uh, Well, the Bay of Fundy is um, a bay that uh, basically separates Nova Scotia from New Brunswick in Maritime Canada. Right. I think... The thing that's more fascinating about the Bay of Fundy is that it's one of only three um, places in the world that have um, the kind of um, profile uh, that it has. It's um, sort of geological and um, the way that uh, it is so uh, the way the tides rise and fall um, to such uh, you know, so high and so low. Um, and then it, uh, if you've ever walked, um, if you've ever been to, um, the sort of Northwestern shore of Nova Scotia, um, at low tide of the Bay of Fundy, right. you can walk for miles, um, seemingly anyway, on this red, um, soft mud. Right. Um, and it's so, definitely something. Yeah. And, and so because, um, it has this characteristic of the very high tides, um, it means that there, it has a very large intertidal zone. Wow. Right. So instead of having this little shoreline where, um, you know, at high tide, it's covered in water, low tide, it's not covered right. in water. And when you imagine your typical beach, that's not a very large area. Right. But with the Bay of Fundy, it's, it's huge. Sure. Right. And so you get this really rich diversity of species. Right. Um, when you have that kind of situation and the other two places in the world that are like this, um, one is actually in Southwestern South Korea. Okay. And the other, I think is off the Ooh, it could be wrong, but I think it's off the coast of Namibia okay. in Africa. So, um, Definitely something that I would recommend people go and see. Mm-hmm. In particular, if you've never thought of, you know, seeing something radically different than mm-hmm. your typical tour spot or city that you may vacation, mm-hmm. um, going to the Bay of Fundy really is a spectacular thing. And I haven't been there, but I've spoken to many people mm-hmm. who have. And perhaps, Becca, you and I one day will record an episode at the Bay of Fundy. How that would be would, fantastic. Would be? Oh, yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. All right, so that's something I will endeavor to make happen. All right. Maybe Tourism New Brunswick will send us there we as ambassador, ambassadors to the Bay of Fundy. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Yeah, why not? Well, and then one thing we can do when we get to the Bay of Fundy mm-hmm. is we can go at low tide yes. on the New Brunswick side, sure. um, which is quite rocky, mm-hmm. uh, unlike the Nova Scotian side, which is quite soft and sandy. Um, but on the New Brunswick side, it's quite rocky. And as when the tide is low, um, as you walk among the rocks, you see all of this kelp and seaweed oh. that's just sort of on the rocks. One kind of seaweed uh, that is popular there is called knotted rack and on that knotted rack you might chance to find little tiny balls of snot now they're not really balls of snot sure but that's what you'll think they are you'll think 
who horked these loogies all over the Bay of Fundy? That is so rude. Fair. Right. But then if you... If you can stand to pick one of these balls of snot up, as I would, as you would, I, I and then would. submerge it in the water, you will see these beautiful fronds come up, and you'll realize, hey, that's not a ball of snot, that's a dendronotus frondosus. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. So tell me more about before we went off in this tangent, and I'm sorry I took you down to the Bay of Fundy. I but love it was, tangents. It was, it was a nice trip there. Yeah. Um, about the hermaphroditic nature of mm. this nudibrum. Well, this is the most fascinating thing. Okay. So first of all, hermaphroditism in animals is actually more frequent and more common than um, just being of one sex or another. Really? Yeah. Okay. And, and that's because a lot of times when we think of animals, we chiefly think of mammals. Of course. Right? Mammals fish. and birds and yeah. fish. Those right. are the ones that you know, sort of... Maybe the odd reptile sure. or amphibian. But um, when you get to the lower orders, the so-called lower orders, mm-hmm. and they're called lower orders because their um, their body plans are not as complex. Um, their brains are smaller. Their breathing apparatus might be uh, simpler. Um, sort of quote unquote design of the animal is simpler. Then that's where you get this amazing diversity in terms of everything, but especially uh, in their reproductive systems. Sure. And so it is more common than not to have um, gastropods, so snails and slugs, sea slugs included, be hermaphrodites of one kind or another. Wow. And now there's more than one kind of hermaphroditism. Okay. There's sequential hermaphroditism and there's simultaneous hermaphroditism. And my um, thesis research had to do with the development of the reproductive organs or one part of the reproductive organ right. of the dendronotus frondosus when it went through the juvenile phase of its life cycle. Um, sea slugs like the dendronotus frondosus uh, have an annual life cycle. Okay. And that makes them very easy to study. Sure. So they only live for one year. Right. Um, they and, are... And is it determined by sort of month or like, mm-hmm. are they like all like say November to November? Right. Does it vary based on... No, it's it's the former. It's, very, it's okay. based on seasons. I see. Okay. So they're very tied to... The phases, um, the seasonality, wow. you know, um, of what's around them. So, what typically happens is um, eggs are laid uh, in the water, mm-hmm. and um, and um, the eggs at the time that they are laid in the water are already fertilized. Okay. So, whether the hermaphrodite is simultaneously hermaphroditic or sequentially hermaphroditic. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens is two animals that of the same species right. um, that have the ability to uh, reproduce as either female or female female or male yes. um, get together and they basically one animal gives the other one what they need sure right of course that's essentially it makes what sense goes yes. down um, and one of the main reasons, at least in 1995, that was postulated for that um, is um, in terms of evolutionary um, biology, was that they move so slowly okay, and their population is so low right. that 
when you're a dendronotus frondosus mm -hmm. and you finally meet up with another dendronotus frondosus, well, you better be able to reproduce. Otherwise, you may not be passing your genes on. I see. So that's their, um, that's, an, that's considered to be evolutionarily beneficial to that species. Well, that totally makes sense now. So, because, yeah. you know, if you meet up and then you're like, ah, I can't. we can't pass on our genes because right. we don't have the missing piece. Right. So what they do is they, um, they fertilize each other's eggs, and I can get into the specific um, method by which they do this uh, a little later, but um, they fertilize each other's eggs. The fertilized eggs, um, which are inside the bodies of the animals, once fertilized, then pass through and are expelled uh, out of the body and um, into the water. And the eggs uh, hatch. Yes. And then they go through um, a stage where they float, but they don't look anything like they do when they grow up. Right. They go through a sort of metamorphosis. So before they're even called juveniles, they sort of free float through the water column with cilia, which are like little tiny hairs that sure, help them sure. move. And then they uh, settle um, by summertime. So it's in the spring that the eggs, right? So by summertime, they settle into a part of the intertidal zone. And they um, turn, they metamorphose into what's known as the juvenile, benthic juvenile phase. We'll have to take the juvenile stage when we record at the Bay of Fundy, we're going to leave our listeners there on a little bit of a to be continued because okay. the life cycle of this fascinating creature is going to have to take more than one episode. Oh, no. Have. No, it's great. Um, of the Insomnia, Insomnia Project. Uh, Becca, where can people find out more information on things that you're doing? Because I know that you're no longer involved in the sea slug world, but you've got a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm no longer um uh a researcher of intertidal invertebrates. Sure. Nowadays, I'm an experimental animation filmmaker. Great. Um I also teach um experimental animation and film and uh digital media um at NASCAD University, and I also do um educational research, mm -hmm. chiefly in language education. Um, and so you can find out anything you want to about anything I'm doing on my website, which is simply BeccaBarker.info. So, um, and I spell my name B-E-C-K-A-B-A-R-K-E-R. -E -E you can find it on our podcast description for this episode in case you'd like to make sure you get the right spelling of it. Cool. So you will, we'll, <laughs> we'll be sure to list that. Becca, thank you so much for oh, okay. such an interesting uh, episode that took us into a lot of places. Oh, but and there's so much more to say about hermaphroditism well, and sea slugs. Then you know what? We're going to do a part two. All right. So stay tuned as well. You're going to have a part two this, to this particular podcast. Thank you once again. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Insomnia Project. And as always, we're produced by Drumcast Productions.